This isn't how we normally begin our episodes, so sorry if it caught you by surprise. I'm Nikki Ryan and I'm one of the producers of The Explainer. As you are well aware at this stage, the past year has been a little tougher than most, to say the least, and a sharp fall in revenue prompted us to launch an appeal for contributions to thejournal.ie. We're lucky enough to have a lot of loyal explainer listeners, as in you, and many have already made either a one-off or a monthly contribution, and that has really helped. It helps us keep doing what we're doing here on this podcast and across the rest of the journal.ie, and to be honest, it also means a lot personally to us all on the team. If you'd like to give a contribution, no matter how small, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute, where you'll find all the details you need. Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, a questions and answers session on vaccines. Because obviously they are the talk of the town in the last couple of weeks. I myself have been pretty giddy with excitement since the UK approved the Pfizer-BioNTech one, because it feels like there's light and hope at the end of this grim time. There's a lot of planning and logistics to sort out in Ireland before our rollout, and I'm sure we'll be back to that topic another day. But first, we wanted to get some basic information about vaccines, how they work, how they're tested, the kind of good information we need before embarking on such a massive project. To help us answer all of those questions, I'm joined again by medical virologist Killian de Gascon. And Killian, we've so much to get through. I'm just going to dive straight in, if that's okay. To make sure no one is in any doubt about what we're talking about, can you explain to us on a very basic level how vaccines work? So at their very simplest level, so actually I suppose the word vaccine comes from the Latin word for cow, vaca. And the reason that that's the case is because Edward Jenner, who was a an English physician in the late 18th century, realised that in essence, milkmaids who suffered from cowpox, which was an infection that they picked up from cows, didn't then suffer from smallpox, as in they, they weren't infected, but they didn't get infected with smallpox. So he was the first person to demonstrate um, from a, an experimental perspective that if you gave somebody cowpox, that they were then protected against smallpox, which was a far more severe disease. And that was really the the start of, of vaccination as we know it. He wasn't, funny enough, the first person to actually carry out the experiment. There were other people who had, who had done it before uh, on a, a sort of a, an occasional basis, but they never published their findings or reported it. So Edward Jenner, I suppose, has become uh, the father of, of modern vaccination. And then following on from that work, people realized that you can use either a milder form of an infection to protect against a more severe form. And that's really where vaccination started. So back in those days, after the cowpox, smallpox um, intervention, people started looking at inactivated forms of other viruses or weakened forms of viruses. They looked at killed bacteria, and then they would inject these into people to prime the immune response and to, to give the immune response an idea as to what the infection might look like. Uh, on the basis that it would protect them then from a more severe form of disease. And that's really where it all started. And and since that time, as was vaccination, it's probably secondary only to, to clean water and sanitation as, as I suppose, one of the most important public health um, and medical interventions uh, of, of all time. We have 
certainly now we're up at probably the mid-teens of, of infections that have been significantly, if not eliminated or eradicated, significantly reduced uh, through vaccination. And I suppose from my perspective, looking at it from a virology perspective, the big ones that I would look at would be the likes of smallpox, polio, measles, mumps, rubella, and then I suppose more recently, rotavirus and, and obviously HPV as well. So vaccination has really um, revolutionized the prevention of, of infectious diseases. So when people go along to get the vaccine or the inoculation, um, what exactly happens in their body after that? Okay, so what we're trying to do is replicate as closely as possible what happens with natural infection. Maybe if I talk just briefly about natural infection and then link that into the vaccine. So with natural infection, if if a a virus or or a bacterium gets into the body that, that shouldn't be there, we have in cells of the immune system called dendritic cells that are in essence on patrol. They're traveling around the body. They're looking for, I suppose, nefarious characters that aren't supposed to be there. And if they identify one, they they pick them up like policemen in, uh, or policewomen in, in a patrol car. They take this invader and then they bring them along to the, the nearest lymph node um, or the nearest police station. And there they activate other cells of the immune system, which are broadly speaking, B cells and T cells. And the B cells ultimately will produce antibody. And then the T cells, when they become activated, they're the cell mediated arm of the immune system. And what they do is actually they can then go out and and kill infected cells. So that's that's a simplification of what happens in in natural infection. And so when so when the B cells they will so the B cells will multiply and proliferate. So there'll be large numbers of them, and then they'll head off and try and identify any more of these nefarious characters that are there, and they'll attach to them, and they'll facilitate their disposal and, and their killing. And then the T cells with the cell mediated immunity, likewise, they'll work with the B cells. They'll work hand in hand to go around and identify any infected cells that need to be killed or, or taken out of action. That's the course of the of the primary infection. So what happens when that infection or invasion is, is resolved, some of the B cells will become memory cells. So what they'll do is they'll, in essence, they'll carry a picture of that invader with them for the rest of their lives. And, and if that invader appears again in six months or six years' time, those B cells will be reactivated very quickly and they'll proliferate again and they'll be ready to, to fight off that infection. So that's what happens in natural infections. What we're, what we're trying to do in vaccination is replicate that. So obviously we don't want a, a severe infection to occur. So we will, but we'll inject either a piece of protein or, or in this case, we'll inject a messenger RNA. And the same thing will happen when it's injected into the body, the immune system will recognize it as, a, as something that's not meant to be there. It'll activate the same processes it'll activate b cells and t cells so you'll get antibody production against this uh, against in this case of sars coronavirus type 2 it'll be primarily the spike protein that we're looking at and then t cells will become activated as well now in this situation they won't need to necessarily there won't be many infected cells that they need to kill but those the, but the fundamental principles of the immune response will apply so the b cells will produce antibody they'll react and then after they've resolved the what they the initial infection or what, or what they perceive as as an infection through vaccination, they will have memory cells. And then what happens is if we if somebody's unlucky enough to get infected with the with the real virus, 
the immune system is primed and ready to go. So there's no waiting around for antibodies to develop. Those B cells are, are ready to, to multiply and proliferate and, and reactivate again very quickly uh, to fight off that, to fight off the real infection. And the reason we use, the reason where people will be aware that a lot of these vaccines are require two doses. Uh, the reason we do use two doses is because the vaccine often works at the first dose, but what happens is that the the immune response can be can be short lived and maybe not very durable. So what we know from from years of and, and decades and centuries, I suppose, of vaccinology is that a booster dose leads to higher um, antibody titers and a more durable response that lasts longer. So in, in simple terms, that's why we use the second dose. It's because it, as I said, although the, the first dose of the vaccine typically works um, and works well, it just, the response isn't as long lasting if you only give one dose. So that's why we use the second dose. Yeah. And there's some of those things we've become so used to. They're not scary anymore. The idea of vaccinations um, for those things that we know uh, work. But over the coming months, people will start to hear things that they're not as used to. And that's where some of the vaccine hesitancy might come in. Um, so that's the idea behind some of these podcasts and, and some of the work that we're doing is to try and get as much information out there as possible. One of the terms that I wanted to ask you about, because I'm hearing it a lot and it, it probably will be uh talked about a lot is mRNA. Can you explain what it is and how does it work? Yeah, sure. So you're right. And I suppose I, it's funny, it's one of the things I suppose I've been learning about as well over the last uh, the last few months, because we don't have any mRNA vaccines on our schedule at the moment. So the M stands for messenger, I suppose, just to clarify. Um, and RNA is ribonucleic acid. It is a form, I suppose, of, it's a chemical messenger, if you like, and it's a piece of a, a genome that provides instructions to a ribosome to produce a protein within a cell. So I suppose maybe to go back to to go back to, to basics, when we're looking at vaccination, what we're trying to do is give the immune system uh, something to look at that prepares it for a, a more severe infection. So we're priming the immune system, if you like. So we can either take some take a protein from a virus and just give the protein and then the immune system can can look at that, it can package it and, and it can get prepared in that way. So hepatitis B, for example, we just use a protein. So the other way of giving the, the body the, the protein to look at is that we can give it the instructions um, to make the protein. So in biological terms or genetics terms, DNA typically gives, gives rise to messenger RNA, which gives rise to protein. So what we're doing with mRNA vaccines is that we're providing the the body's immune response with the instructions to make a protein that really can be anything. In this case, in the case of SARS coronavirus type 2, we're looking at the spike protein. So what happens is we administer the mRNA vaccine that's injected into the body. It's taken up by most, uh, by a lot of the cells that it will meet in the body. And then the mRNA is converted into protein. So the cell manufactures the protein and it starts to put that protein out into the bloodstream. And the immune response sees that protein, it recognizes it as, as something that's foreign or something that's potentially dangerous um, and it mounts an immune response against it. But the beauty of the mRNA vaccine is that it's not infectious. So it doesn't contain all of the material um, from SARS coronavirus type two. It's purely the spike protein. So it's very safe. It's, it seems to be very effective based on the, the studies that we've seen to date and the data that we've seen to date. And 
what that means then is that the immune system is is primed and prepared for a, a potential encounter with the full virus um, in the months and weeks ahead after the person is vaccinated. Is that a big game changer then in the science world that an mRNA vaccine is the one being used first here? I, I, I think it certainly is. And it's, and it's really, I suppose, a bit of a, a timing issue, um, sort of fortuitous timing. So mRNA has been has been used as a as therapy in, in sort of in the cancer arena for, for a while. It's been looked at in that um, sort of medical specialty. In the context of vaccination, it's been looked at recently over the last sort of few years for the likes of rabies, for influenza, and I think for Zika as well. So it, it's really just been waiting for us it for its opportunity. It's, the technology has been developing over the last number of years, uh, and now the timing is right. And I suppose what's what's attractive about the mRNA vaccine is that it seems to be very amenable to, to scaling up and, and to rapid production. And really, if this if these vaccines are, are as effective as the, in the real world as they appear in the studies, um, it really could open up a whole new era in vaccinology because there are already, um, I suppose, preliminary studies looking at um, combinations of, of different antigens. So you can combine maybe you know three or four or five different pieces of mRNA in, into a single injection. Uh, and vaccinate people, potentially immunize people against a, a huge number of, of different infections at the same time. Now, obviously, there are some challenges that will have to be overcome from a, a logistics perspective. Obviously, people will be aware of the ultra-cold chain, the ultra-cold temperatures required for, for the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine at this stage. But people are working on that to, to improve the stability of, of mRNA vaccines um, at, at higher temperatures uh, and also to make sure that they can stay in, you know, either whether it's refrigerated temperatures or even at room temperatures for longer periods of time. So there will be developments in that space uh, in, the coming, in the coming years. But certainly this new approach to, uh, to vaccinology is, is very exciting. And, as, and you're right, it could well be a game changer. You mentioned the Pfizer vaccine there, but we know that there are more than a dozen COVID vaccines in phase three trials or beyond that right now. Obviously, there are front runners, the Pfizer one, the Moderna one and the AstraZeneca one. Can you run us through the main differences or if there are any between those three? The So the first two there, um, the Pfizer and Moderna are both uh, messenger RNA vaccines. Um, the, the main difference from what I can see at this point in time is that the Pfizer requires uh, as an ultra-cold chain um, for, for transport and for storage uh, prior to use. My understanding is that the Moderna is, doesn't require temperatures that are, that are quite as cold. The AstraZeneca then is a different form of, of vaccine. Again, it's, it's not messenger RNA, but it's, it's similar in the context of being gene-based. So as I said earlier, broadly speaking with vaccines there are a few different types you can either use the if we stick us if i stick to viruses just to make it easy you can either use um an inactivated form of the virus so that's what we use for influenza every year so again it can't give you the infection um you can use a, a particular part of the virus so a protein subunit and as I said that's what we use for the likes of hepatitis b um and then similarly you can use either then a gene-based therapy and that can be either RNA or DNA. So the virus vector or the viral vector that uh, AstraZeneca and Oxford are, are using 
they're harnessing, they're taking a chimpanzee adenovirus. And what they're doing is that they're inserting a piece of the SARS coronavirus type 2 genome, uh, again, corresponding to the spike protein, into the adenovirus vector. And then they know from, from years of study that that adenovirus, when it gets into the body, is capable of inserting that genetic material into the nucleus of the cell. And so the same thing happens. The cell reproduces and manufactures uh, spike protein from SARS coronavirus type 2, uh, and that stimulates the immune response. So again, the adenovirus that's being used isn't capable of replicating itself, so it can't cause any disease, it can't cause any infection. It's simply being used as a, as a delivery vehicle to get the piece of the SARS coronavirus type 2 genome that we want into the cell. So there, so that, and my understanding, again, just from the from, from what we've seen about the AstraZeneca and Oxford vaccine is that, again, that's, it is uh, stable and, and durable, at, again, at, at higher temperatures and, and for longer periods of time. Um, and there's probably slightly more experience um, in the field. The Oxford group have been working on, on this vaccine for, for quite a while. So, again, it was, it was very much as was ready to go when, when SARS coronavirus type 2 came along. What do we know about the potential side effects? We know, obviously, that there has been a lot of safety trials and a lot of people have already taken um, these vaccines as part of those trials. Yeah, so thankfully, there have been no safety signals or significant safety signals at, at this point in time, which is great. Uh, and I think it's, again, important to reassure people that the safety um, bar or the threshold for safety in vaccine studies is, is really high. And, and appropriately so, because if you think about it in the context of, you know, if you're feeling sick or if you have a disease that is, you know, having a significant impact on your life and perhaps even, you know, threatening your life, then the, your threshold for taking a, a treatment is probably a little bit, you know, lower in the context of safety. Obviously, all of the drugs are, are safe, but you're willing to accept maybe more side effects if it's a therapeutic agent, purely because the disease is, is significantly worse than, than the treatment, you know. In the context of vaccination, we have to be very cautious purely because we are injecting people with a, you know, what is a, a foreign substance, um, but we're injecting healthy people and well people. So it's really important that whatever we're giving them doesn't have significant side effects. So it's really you, it's really positive to date that we haven't seen any um, significant safety signals from the trials. Now, there's obviously a small risk that as the numbers, the number of people exposed to the vaccine increases, that some rare adverse events might emerge. Uh, and unfortunately, that's something that we can't necessarily control for in the setting of a trial. So people will know that tens of thousands of people have been vaccinated uh, with these new vaccines. And as I said, we haven't seen anything. Is it possible that something with a, that occurs at a frequency of one per million might emerge? It, it is possible, but you're, but you're never going to be able to identify that in a trial realistically. So at the moment, they all look very safe. What, off, what sometimes happens with, um, with new vaccines that people, as, as has been reported in the UK, people may have an allergic response to, to a component of the vaccine. Um, and if that happens, it's really important that we, you know, that we investigate that and, and try to interrogate what happened and see what, which component of the vaccine might be eliciting an allergic response after that. If people get an adverse event, sometimes it might be that the antibodies that are produced by the vaccine against the, the virus, those antibodies might 
having it might have an impact on some other part of the body as well so occasionally something see something like that but again at this stage we haven't seen any sort of worrying uh, safety signals uh, from the trials to date one talking point this week has been around pregnant women and the vaccine what will be the situation with pregnant women and the rollout so i suppose i don't necessarily want to want to preempt what the the guidance from uh, in relation to pregnancy, but ultimately at this stage, we haven't seen data that the vaccine has been used to a significant degree in pregnant women because they would have been excluded from the studies. Um, so at this stage, based on the absence of data, it's unlikely that it will be recommended for use in pregnancy. Um, but that will obviously change over time as we get more information. And oftentimes what happens in this situation is that in the you know, after the va- the vaccine has been licensed and is starting to be used, and we've seen we see this with often with other drugs that are used um, for for the treatment of a variety of conditions and other vaccines. That when these things roll out into the real world, but they get used in people who don't necessarily appreciate that they're pregnant at the time. So we can often accumulate an awful lot of safety data um, indirectly in that setting. Um, and then the other question will be whether there'll be specific trials that will include um, pregnant women. But at the moment, just because the data aren't there, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not safe in pregnancy. It just means that we don't have those data to inform us. So we obviously want to operate on a, on a precautionary basis uh, and are on the side of caution. So once we have more information about the, the safety and efficacy in pregnant women, uh, it probably won't be recommended for them at this point in time. For those people who will be getting the vaccine soon, what do we know about whether the vaccine is just going to stop them from getting sick or will it also stop them from transmitting the virus if they pick it up? Um, I've been asked this by a few people and it feels like a bit of a conundrum and I don't know how to answer it. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And, um, and I suppose there are a couple of different elements to it. So in short, what we've seen from the studies that have been published to date, from the clinical trial data we have to date, is that it the vaccines are effective at preventing symptomatic infection. So stopping people from getting sick. Uh, and that's and that's really important. So that's that's kind of your first step in many respects. The second question then, as you've alluded to, is whether it stops people from becoming infected asymptomatically. So what we know about vaccines from other settings is that typically vaccines don't cause a type of immunity that, that prevents the infection occurring. So what the vaccination does is that it prepares the immune response. So it primes the immune response with a with a minor form of the infection to allow to ensure that the immune system is is prepared to defend the host when the real infection occurs. And what that means is that if you if we look at say the, a normal SARS coronavirus type two infection, if I get infected today on on a Friday, it'll take a week or two for my immune system to respond and I probably won't have antibodies detectable in my blood for really probably 10 to 14 days. So that means in that time period, the virus has the opportunity to to replicate, to multiply, to infect lots of cells and to get into my nose and throat. And there's an opportunity there for me to transmit the infection to other people. Now, if I have been vaccinated, that same process still occurs as in the virus is still able to infect me. But because I've been vaccinated and my immune system is prepared to respond, that 10 to 14 day period that I, that happens, that occurs with natural infection, that's really reduced probably to a couple of days. 
So what that means is that the virus doesn't have the same opportunity to replicate and to multiply. So it doesn't have the opportunity to get up to the same high level of virus. It doesn't have the same level of opportunity to get into my nose and throat and cause symptoms and allow me to transmit the infection. So that's, the, I suppose, the scientific background. So we would expect that even if the vaccine doesn't entirely prevent infection, it still should ensure that the amount of transmission that occurs from people who are vaccinated should be should be reduced. But the problem is, I suppose, to come back to your question, is that we don't yet have data from the studies to, to demonstrate that. So the two, the mRNA vaccines haven't been able to look at, didn't look at that in their studies. The AstraZeneca and Oxford group have some, they actually monitored people as well. So they did sequential or serial testing of their, of a proportion of their study participants. So what they saw was that the number of people who had infection without symptoms was reduced in the vaccine arm compared to the non-vaccine arm or the, the placebo arm. So that suggests that the vaccine, at least that vaccine, will have an impact on the number of people who get infected and should have an impact on transmission. But at this point in time, those are preliminary findings and we really need more information. But as I said, there's no reason to believe that the vaccination won't have that sort of effect purely because it will, by definition, it will have a, an impact on the natural course of the infection um, in people who have been vaccinated. So I'm guessing that means that we will have to continue with a lot of the social distancing, even if you're in a room where you know a couple of people have been vaccinated, you still shouldn't really be as close to them until we have reach what we are now calling herd immunity. Is that correct reading of it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think and that so until we get to a stage, and as I said, we will get more information on this over the coming sort of months until we have more information, vaccine just becomes another, I suppose, component of our defense uh, against this uh, respiratory virus. So you're right, the public health measures that have been implemented and have been uh, encouraged since the very start will continue to be necessary. But what we will hopefully see as the vaccine rolls out is that we'll see fewer people getting sick, we'll see fewer people going into hospital, and we'll see fewer people getting in or and dying as a result of this infection. And then as a, as a separate issue then, as a parallel pathway, as the amount of people in the population is increases and we get up to that level of what that is required for, for herd immunity, which is probably given how readily transmissible SARS coronavirus type two is, we probably need around 70 to 80% of people to be vaccinated before um, we reach that herd immunity threshold. So that will happen in, in parallel. And obviously what that will take uh, a number of months uh, in 2021 to, to be able to get vaccinated that number of people. But so the first thing we'll be looking at will be illness and hospitalizations and, and deaths. Uh, and then as I said, in, in parallel, we'll be increasing the proportion of the population that has been vaccinated. And that's when we get to herd immunity. And when we do reach a, a herd immunity threshold, assuming that the duration of protection is measured in, in years rather than months, um, then at that point, we might be able to, to see some, I suppose, some, some easing on, on the public health guidance that is in place but but certainly no we're looking at we're looking at physical distancing hand hygiene respiratory etiquette and, and masks for for the next six months six to twelve months i would think anyway can we just explain just to go back a little bit what herd immunity actually is yeah of course so 
herd immunity, I suppose there was a lot of discussion about it in the context of the, the I suppose, when the pandemic, when it first emerged as a, as a particular strategy. And I suppose it's never, herd immunity is not a public health strategy. But what, what it is, I suppose, to explain to people in simple terms, it really refers to the, the prevalence or the proportion of the population that is immune to a given infection. And if so, as I said, we're speculating that for SARS coronavirus type 2, it's between 70 and 80%. We know, for example, for rubella, it's 85%. And we know for measles, it's about 95%. And that herd immunity or that, that level or that percentage that, that I've just given you, if you can get the level of immunity in the population up to that threshold, if you can achieve, so as I say, 70 to 80% in the context of SARS coronavirus type 2, and if you can maintain that level of immunity within your population as a whole, then the infection should over time be eliminated purely because there aren't enough susceptible hosts uh, in the population. Now, unfortunately, that sounds quite straightforward. And in some respects, in, in the early course of events, it it can be, but people will know from recent years that we've had outbreaks of mumps, we've had outbreaks of measles, uh, and, and you kind of alluded to, to it yourself there earlier on in our conversation. When people don't see these infections or these diseases, we kind of forget about them. So therefore, vaccination becomes less important. And obviously, in Ireland and, and across the world, we would have seen um, vaccine uptake rates for the MMR dropped significantly in the early part of this century. Now, thankfully, we're getting back up to the levels that we need to be at. But in order to sustain your, your level of herd immunity and to, to keep uh, an infection out of a population, um, it needs to be maintained. So that level of protection needs to be up at about 80% uh, indefinitely. And as I said, that sometimes can become a challenge when people yeah, when they don't see the infection anymore and they kind of forget about the, the high case numbers and the figures that we saw uh, back in the spring of, of 2020. For you, you've touched on it a little bit there, but when we are rolling out the vaccine, will we see an immediate drop in the death figures? Like this week, we've had some days where there have been high death counts, like 15 one day. Will, will that stop quite quickly when we vaccinate those people who are most at risk of death? Yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's a really good question. And, and to be honest, I, I don't know that I have a very good answer for you uh, I suppose for a couple of reasons. I suppose the first one is we really need to see how well these vaccines work in the real world. Um, the clinical trials are, are really important um, and have given us a very good indication, but they're a very controlled setting. Um, they're very motivated part, uh, trial participants, are very motivated and I suppose team of of, vested, uh, of individuals who have a vested interest in ensuring that the, the trial works well. So when we roll out into the real world, um, we often see a, a sort of a fall off in the in the effectiveness. Now that said, if we're coming from a, a very high base of of ninety to ninety five percent, even if it falls off to about eighty percent in the real world, that's still really important. But the other question is then how quickly people take up the vaccine and how quickly the the affected groups or the vulnerable groups are are vaccinated. But we know there's a lag time for deaths as well. So from the time the people get infected to the time they get admitted to hospital and to the time they pass away, there is often a lag time. So I certainly, uh, while I would be hopeful that the rollout of vaccine will reduce the number of deaths and the number of hospitalizations, 
relatively quickly. I think it's probably not something that will will happen overnight purely because, as I said, there's, there's always that lag in the system between people as was getting sick and being uh, being hospitalized. And also, we don't know what will happen, say, if people, you know, have have the first dose of the vaccine and then get infected before they get their second dose. So there are all of those sort of things that we need to tease out. And I suppose the other element then is whether people in all age groups uh, and in all ethnic groups will respond equally to the vaccine. So for example, if we're saying that it's 95% coming out of the, the trials, is that the same in you know people in somebody who's 25 and somebody who's 45 and somebody who's 65 and someone who's 85? It, it's possible that it will be, but it would be surprising. And we also need to see the breakdown of people that were enrolled in the trials uh, to tease out uh, that information. So yes, I think it'll it will have an impact but uh, yeah, I'd be, I suppose I'd be reluctant to try and predict how quickly it would happen purely because I, I don't know. As I said at the start, I'm actually not that worried about how quickly it happens. It's just that it's happening. It's giving me enough hope and light and hopefully for most people listening as well. Thank you so much, Gillian, for joining us and the explainer and going through all of that information with us. Thanks, Sinead. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Killian for joining us today. If you enjoyed this chat and learned something, we have loads more for you. Check out our back catalogue where you'll find other shows on the coronavirus and a hell of a lot more too. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by co-producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.